without God, our view of the world becomes very man-centered. We've defined that as anthropocentric. Anthropos, the Greek word for man. So anthropocentric, man-centered. Instead of what the Bible describes as a theocentric worldview. Theos, the Greek word for God. Theocentric, God-centered. And while today most around us are living in an anthropocentric world, we see from the scripture that we have, in reality, a theocentric world in which God one day will show that he and he alone is the one true God. You see, the problem with living in an anthropocentric system where, in a sense, we delineate what is true, is that it always changes. This past Monday, you probably read or saw on the news that the U.S. Supreme Court decided not to rule, not to even take up the case of some lower court rulings that involve same-sex marriage, and by not ruling, they ended up legalizing same-sex marriage in at least 11 more states and probably more. And every time I read about that, my mind immediately asks the question, well, if same-sex marriage is okay, why does our country have any law against polygamy? All 50 states say that you cannot have more than one spouse. Well, if there's no truth... Who's to say that you can or you can't? Why would we say that it's okay for a man to marry a man or a woman to marry a woman, but not a man to marry two women or a woman to marry two men? You see, our view of the world very much rests on our view of the true God and God's words and his faithfulness to what he says. So to begin, we're going to look at at three different principles this morning, the first of which we're going to begin seeing in Jeremiah chapter 10, and here's the principle. The God of Scripture is the only true God, and all other gods are idols. The God of Scripture is the only true God, all other gods are our idols. Now, The book of Jeremiah, chapter 10, where I ask you to turn, the prophet Jeremiah is writing to the southern tribes of Israel, and they have had a real issue with idols, continue to go after idols. And so here in the 10th chapter, the prophet is actually addressing that, and in chapter 10, verse 1, says, do not learn the way of the nations. Stop following these gods of the nations around you. And you'll notice in verses 3, 4, and 5, he goes on to say, he says, listen, what you are doing is you're worshiping a piece of wood with some gold or some silver on the outside of it. That's what you're worshiping. You're worshiping a piece of wood that's been hewn out of a tree. And then he comes down in verse 10 and says this, but the Lord is the true God. 
He is the living God, the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. You see, there's only one true God. Everything else is an idol. God defines himself. He is the standard. He is the only true God. If you turn to the New Testament, John chapter 17, we find here Jesus praying right before he goes to the cross, and most likely the 11 disciples are listening to his Jesus prays. And Jesus is asking the Father to raise him from the dead and restore him to the glory that he once knew when he was seated at the right hand of the Father. And here in this prayer, in verse 3, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 1.18 says that God sent Jesus so that we could actually see God. We could fathom him. We could grasp him. Here, Jesus is praying to the Father and he says about the Father that he is the only true God. If you turn over to 1 John, the little epistle of John, to the back of your Bible, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now notice verse 21. Even here, John is warning us, the readers of this letter, that it's very easy for us to try to replace God. So he says this, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now your idol, my idol, might not be a little piece of wood covered with gold or silver. But as we're going to see this morning, it's very easy for us to replace God with an idol. You see, anything to which we go for our security, our peace, our happiness, instead of God, becomes our idol. And here in these three passages of Scripture, we're receiving the Old Testament and the New Testament, this truth. There's only one true God. Everything else is an idol. This summer I took some weeks off from preaching and Pastor Brian did a series. And um, during that time I was able to do some things I don't normally get to do. Like I was able to teach in adult ed a couple of times. Thoroughly enjoyed that. And I also worked in children's ministries for two weeks. A lot of work. I have a deeper appreciation for all of you that work with our children. And I was with my wife with the two-year-olds. Wow! One thing I learned is that two-year-olds spend way too much time on the floor. The, it's designed to have like story time on the floor. And, and so my little phrase was, okay, Pastor Steve's here today. We're going to do everything at the table. It's much easier on the knees. Well, I enjoyed it. And there's this one cool little kid in there named Grayson that he and I, we just kind of had a bond. And Grayson 
loved to do one thing. He loved to tear down anything that Pastor Steve built. When I was a kid, we had Etch-a-Sketch. You got, some of you my age remember Etch-a-Sketch. Well, now they've got Etch-a-Sketch on steroids. It's this really cool things that have like these, it's like magnetized or something, and you can make shapes, and you can use a pen, you can do really neat pictures. And just when I was getting a neat picture, Grayson would sneak in with his hand and whoom, and wipe it all out. Or if I'd start to build a tower or something, oh, this is going to be so cool, boom, and then he'd get a little glimmer in his eye like, hey, I just tore it down. You know, that's exactly what you and I need to do every time we start putting something in God's place. And it's so easy for us to do. Here in 1 John 5, the Apostle John warns us, don't be worshiping idols. And we're going to say that the way we tear down these idols, those things that that we put in God's place in our heart, is by tearing them down with the truth of God. We have a men's ministry here at Faith Bible Church. meets on Wednesday mornings at 6.30. This past Wednesday, again, it was so cool because we turned to a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that fits so well with what we're talking about this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, talks about breaking down idols. And it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. You see the fortresses here are those idols that we allow in our hearts to take God's place. Those things which we say, well, I really need security, so I'm going to find my security in this. I'm going to find my happiness in this. And whatever that this is, if it's not God, that becomes our idol. We combat, we tear those idols down with truth. And as we see in God's word, God is not the only true God, but he's always faithful to what he says. Let's turn over to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we begin to see this theme of God's faithfulness to his word. So you see there's only one true God. Everything we put in his place is an idol. And that one true God is always faithful to what he says. In Deuteronomy 32, we have a song. Just like we sang some songs this morning, this song was meant for the nation of Israel to continue to sing over and over. And by singing it, they're actually, it becomes part of them. They, they memorize these words. And this was meant to be a dedication of themselves to God. They dedicate themselves once again to be renewed in obedience to Him. And 
in this song, they actually sang and told God, God, if you do discipline me, you are right in disciplining me if my heart falls away from you. And in this song, in verses 4 through 9, they affirm the faithfulness of God. Notice verse 4. It calls God the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. He's a God of faithfulness. He's the rock. We can depend on him. Whatever he says, he's faithful to do. Turn to the book of Numbers, right before Deuteronomy, Numbers chapter 23. This is a fascinating section in the book of Numbers. It's all about a guy named Balaam and a king named Balak. In chapter 22 of Numbers, we're introduced to this Moabite king named Balak. Moab's a nation. And the Moabites, these people, heard about Israel and Israel's God, and they are scared. They think that Israel is going to come and destroy them, wipe them out. And so the Moabite king, down in verse 4 of Numbers 22, this guy, uh, this king named Balak, comes up with a plan. He's going to hire a prophet. So he hires a pagan prophet named Balaam, and he calls for Balaam, and down in verse 5 and 6, he tells this pagan king, this guy from this Euphrates River Valley, I want you to put a curse on Israel. So we have a pagan king hiring a pagan prophet to pronounce a curse against Israel. And so this pagan prophet, Balaam, says... I'm going to talk to Israel's God. And he approaches God. In verse 12 of 22, God actually speaks to Balaam and tells Balaam in verse 12, don't go with them, the Moabites. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam's going to go back and and talk to this king Balak. And God, in chapter 23, actually gives Balaam a message for Balak. And down in verse 16 of 23, it says, Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Now look at verse 19. This is God's message that Balaam is to give to Balak. That Balaam is supposed to tell Balak, I'm not to curse Israel's God because God is going to bless them. Look at verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? You see, the message is this. I'm not going to change my mind. God says, I have said it. I'm going to do it. So you go back and tell Balaam, no sense putting a curse on Israel because Israel's God's going to bless them. And he said it. He's going to do it. He is always faithful to what he says. Look at the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. One of the great passages in the Old Testament where God enters into covenant with King David. And in 2 Samuel 7 verse 13, God tells David, A descendant of yours will sit upon your throne forever and ever. We know from the New Testament that one day, 
Jesus will fulfill this promise as the Davidic king, as the descendant of David, and will be enthroned on David's throne forever and ever. This message of God to David is so incredible. David's heart is just filled with praise. And at the end of the section of chapter 7 of 2 Samuel 7, David says, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. David says, you're God, and your words are truth. There's only one true God. All other gods are idols. And he's always faithful to what he says. I like the company L.L. Bean. Not just because I went to Maine last summer and fell in love with everything Maine. I'm so anxious to go back and eat some more. But because L.L. Bean does what they say. If you ever order anything from L.L. Bean, you'll notice on their website, right across the top of the website, in big words, it says, L.L. Bean, 100% satisfaction since 1912. I had a chance to try that out a couple of weeks ago. I, last summer, purchased a church for work. Well, coming here to Faith Bible Church. Some of you may disagree that that's work, but for the office. So it doesn't, you know, it's not like I'm out cutting wood or chopping up concrete in this shirt. It's an office shirt. Had it about 14 months. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, the button where the, the collar buttons down to the body of the shirt, the material just gave way and left a big hole. I was out with my wife. My wife looked at me and said, there's a hole in your shirt. I said, this is my favorite shirt. I'll just keep wearing it. She said, you're not going to wear that shirt with that hole in it. Oh, my wife, if she sees a little hole, she loves to make it bigger. It's just, that's my favorite shirt. And I've got three more years out of that. So I thought, okay, see, my wife says I can't wear this anymore. So I will call L.L. Bean because it's 100% satisfaction since 1912. I call and says, sure, just send it back to us. We'll send you a new shirt. A few days later, it's a brand new shirt. Now it's, that's my favorite shirt. In fact, I got on the phone and I ordered... Three more shirts for myself and four shirts for my mother. You see, when I find out that they're true, then I'm going to keep coming back and coming back and coming back. And that's what God wants us to do with him. You see, he's faithful. And every time he proves himself faithful to you, he wants you to come back again and again because he's always faithful to his word. You see, we start doubting. When God tells me in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy. I start thinking, well, I've got to find rest someplace else. How can I find rest and peace in God? So it's either this thing, or maybe even I think I'm going to find my peace and my rest and my significance in my spouse or or my children. We can even put them in God's place. 
And in reality, the way we tear down those idols is by recognizing that there's only one true God. He's always faithful to what he says. And if he says I can find my peace and my comfort and my rest in him, that's where I have to go. We've got one true God. Everything else is an idol. And he's always faithful to what he says. Finally, I want us to turn over to the book of Titus in the New Testament. Titus chapter 1. There's only one true God. Everything else is an idol. He's always faithful to what he says. And here in Titus 1 and John 17, we're going to see that what he says is always true. In fact, God defines truth. What he says always matches reality. God's words are always true. Here in the opening words of the book of Titus, Paul's introducing himself as a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then in verse, in verse 2, he talks about his apostleship and, and, and what the, the reason for his apostleship is. He's been sent out to do one thing, and that's to proclaim a message of eternal life. You see, what drove the apostle Paul was telling people that simple message that Jesus is God that he died on the cross to pay for our sins and rose again from the dead, proving that he's God. And that when we put our trust in him, his payment for our sin is credited to the account of our lives. That's Paul's message. That's what's driving him. And here, Paul in verse 2 of Titus 1 says that that's a message from ages ago. Now notice what he says in verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. You see, God's words are always true. He cannot lie. Turn back to the Gospel of John again, back to the 17th chapter. And in John chapter 17, verse 17, John is using one of those words from the, we call it the holiness word group. The word holy the word sanctify are from the same word groups. When we talk about God being holy, we're talking about him being complete, completely set apart from his created work. And when he talks about us being sanctified, it's talking about us being set apart wholly to God. Completely to God. We belong to him. Now when John talks about sanctification, he always equates it with mission. We're set apart to do something. And here in John 17, it's the same thing. Verse 17 says, sanctify them. Verse 18 says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So here Jesus is praying that God would set apart Jesus' followers on mission. Sending them into the world as Jesus' representatives. Now look how Jesus is asking the Father to set us apart. Sanctify us, set apart them in the truth. Your word is truth. There's only one God. Everything else we put in his place is an idol. He's always faithful to what he says. And what he says is always true. 
He is the standard. In 2002, my wife Barbara and I had the privilege of being able to go to Spain for two weeks with our expenses pretty much all covered. And so we went to this conference for the first week in Barcelona, and then we went to Sevilla and spent some time and ended up in Madrid. Now, we had made a pact amongst the two of us that two weeks in Spain, we will only go to one cathedral and one museum. I'm not a big cathedral guy. I'm not a big museum guy. The rest of the time, we're just going to eat. I mean, when you're in Spain, eat like the Spaniards, right? So it's our last day, and we are in Madrid, and we've not done our museum yet. Well, there's a very famous museum in Spain, in, in, in Madrid, and inside of that museum is a Rembrandt. Now, I'm not a big art guy, but I know the name Rembrandt, and I've never seen one. So we go, and I stand in front of this Rembrandt, knowing nothing about art. My first reaction was, dude, you could have picked a more comely woman to paint than this one. So he's got this painting of kind of just a lady. And uh, I know nothing about art, but when I looked at that, I thought, this is magnificent. I could not believe my eyes that someone with their free hand could somehow create such a masterpiece. It, it almost looked to me like it, it could have been a photograph, the level of detail in that work. Now, you all that know me know that I am the antithesis to art. I there's nothing artsy about me at all. When I was in grade school, we could in our in our little report cards, we either got an S or an N or a U. S is satisfactory, N needs improvement, U is unsatisfactory. My whole grade school career, I got two Ns. One's in handwriting, and my handwriting still stinks, and one was in art. I just didn't see the point. I mean, this is a waste of my time. I've got better things to do. They give me a, P, a picture to correct color. I'll just take out one crayon, go over it, so here I'm done. It just... So, I'm the last guy that should be going to look at a Rembrandt. In fact, there's no way I could even take any of my quote-unquote art and even lay it up next to a Rembrandt. They shouldn't even let me in the museum. They shouldn't really even let me into Madrid. In fact, they should keep me out of the whole country of Spain. That's how unartsy I am. You see, in my mind, that Rembrandt is the standard. And I can't even compare. Now here's what's happening in our world today. We lift ourselves up by making ourselves the standard. In other words, we people say, well, I'm going to define what truth is. We live in an anthropocentric culture. But in reality, a theocentric world. If it's up to us to set the standard for what's truth, we are all in big trouble. But fortunately, we have a true God who demands his creation's worship. And one day, every knee will bow before him. Some will have stood in rejection, and will still stand in rejection, but when they are before the one true God, 
they'll be bowed to the ground. Because he's the standard. He is a true God. And what he says is true. And he is always faithful to his words. You see, that's what we have to hang on to. When we start feeling insecure and we want security. When we start feeling lack of control in our lives and we want control. It's easy for us to create a sense of control or security by putting someone or something in God's place instead of coming to him as the one true God who is the only rightful holder of first place in your life and my life. And the ability that we have under the Spirit's control to tear down those false idols rests in us coming back time after time to the truth. There's only one true God. He's always faithful to what he says, and what he says is always true. 